0: You ready for the weekend and a big Father's Day weekend? And today's show is brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento. Locally owned for over 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, plumbing repair, bathroom plumbing. New Works has a fix for you. They are a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, New Works will be there for you. New Works, just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W. WRXplumbing.com. Remember, Newworks has a fix for you. That's NewworksPlumbing.com. N e w w r x plumbingcom Well, on Tuesday, it was an absolute pleasure to have Tim Brando, and we talked a lot about name, image, and likeness. We talked about where we saw the future of college sports, particularly college football. We had a lot of fun. I even found out that Tim Brando actually called a hockey game, but today we're going to move on because I love the fact that Tim has really had a, a phenomenal background in golf. You've covered golf. I know you're an avid golfer. It's a pleasure to welcome back for the second time this week, Tim Brando. How are you, buddy?
1: I'm great, Grant. Good to be with you. When uh, you know the U.S. Open begins, that's my favorite major. Yeah, uh, which makes it my favorite golf tournament, honestly. And uh, so I'm in a good mood with that. Uh, you know, the College World Series starts tomorrow, and that's another favorite event of mine. So I'm in a hell of a mood. I'm I'm having a hard <laughs> time getting a time because I'm so busy watching stuff. Yeah, you know, I'm with you uh, on the tube.
0: I'm with you. You know, it's interesting because there's a lot that's going on in the world of golf right now. We know about the Live Tour, and they debuted last week in London. Since then, Phil Mushnick of the New York Post, he wrote a compelling column called it Blood Money. Bob Costas recently called it Blood Money. And yet, you look at the galleries this week, and you look at the uh, fanfare for Phil Mickelson, and uh, you really wouldn't have known any difference. I mean, there were autograph seekers, there were pictures here and there, and the fans were— Thrilled to see Phil Mickelson and the others out there. What's your take on this?
1: Well, I'm. By the way, uh, I I, I deem uh, Phil Mushnick uh, a a friend and and Bob Costas too, but I disagree with him uh, in the sense that it's blood money. I think that's I think that's a little bit too much. But you know, in the media, that's going to happen from time to time, and and frankly, uh, I do think. That live golf is bad for golf ultimately, especially for fans. Okay, uh, it is bad for golf in the sense that uh, when you're lining up for the Players Championship, by example, you know the so-called fifth major at Ponte Vedra, Florida, that is even a better. I, I would I would suggest that that is a better field than even the U.S. Open, because the U.S. Open is a qualifying open. You know, if you've got a two handicap, you can go and uh, and try to qualify and go through the different stages of qualifying. That's why they call it an open tournament. You know, that, that's what mm-hmm. allowed for France's we met to win in 1913 and, and set the, 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 the United States really into a new genre of golf popularity. So historically, the U.S. Open should be about not necessarily the strongest field, but an open field that brings many storylines. The Players' Championship which is not a major, but I think the players view it as that, is almost always going to have the strongest field. Well, with live golf, particularly if the PGA stays with their suspension, if Jay Monahan stays with the suspension of all the players that competed in London and will compete uh, next week in Portland, well, you know, we're not going to have the strongest fields uh, anymore uh, unless, you know, the USGA and the RNA continue to allow players from live golf to compete for those championships. And my understanding is that the USGA and the RNA both felt that all the players that had qualified for this season should be able to compete in their championship. And much like the masters, uh, the open championship and the USGA are separate bodies. Okay. They're not a part of the PGA tour. Um, You know, Fred Ridley, who runs the Masters, is going to be the next guy that I think becomes the most important person as it relates to whether those players that have been suspended by the PGA get to compete in the Masters coming up in the spring. Imagine, okay, if Phil Mickelson, who's a a multi-winner of the Masters, doesn't get to compete uh, at the the Masters championship. That's going to be some story if, in fact, uh, it happens. So that's the tough part is that a little bit like auto racing, Grant, when we had that deal with the indie cars years ago, we didn't see that, you know, that almost ended the Brickyard. It great almost point. ended the Indian Atlas 500. That's a great point with we the car series,
0: series and IRL. Yep, great point.
1: Yes, yes. Where golf, Where golf no longer delivers the best players on the planet, more than say two or three times a year, as opposed to 14, 15 times a year. Great point. In some great tournaments. Like most of the great players are going to play Memorial. Most of the great players, uh, uh, you know, historically have played at Arnold's event, mm-hmm. uh, Jack's event, at Mirfield Village. We won't see that. And so ultimately, the point that, that Mushnik and Costas are making is good. I, I, I agree. It, it's bad for golf especially for the fans, that you don't get to see the best possible player. Yeah. But think about this for just a minute, okay? <laughs> As I watched the grilling of Phil Mickelson uh, prior to this week's U.S. Open and and what happened to him at London uh, the week before, I'd also seen it. And he did not perform well, Grant. That's I mean, correct. he didn't. That's correct. And I'm a fan of Phil. I'm, I knew him when he was young. I met him in 19... 19- Ninety-five at a Tom Lehman shootout to raise some money for his charity on his home course in Minnesota. Yeah, Phil was a kid. I want to say twenty-three, twenty-four. We're walking down the fairway, and he's like, "Mr. Brando, how my pods gonna do this year?" You know, he's a big San Diego Padres fan. Uh, it was uh, it was wonderful getting to know the young Phil, and then as a, an older Phil, as he grew into the tour, yeah, he had uh, those that were uh, detractors, yes, but he was for the last 30 years, really, the modern-day version of Arnold Palmer. He was the guy that would reach out and touch the fans. He would stop and talk mm-hmm. to people. Um, and uh, and now, he seems aloof. He, he seems detached. He seems dismissive and defensive, which, uh, you know, belies who he's always been. And Great that's point. unfortunate. So he did not handle, uh, from a public relations standpoint, uh, the media very well. And by the way, the media is grilling of him was fair the questions were all fair agreed and he did a poor job with it agreed but if you take him out of it if you take his quotes to alan shipnuck in the book out yep. of it i don't know that this is as big of a deal as it currently is a great point it got attention because of what phil said yep in that book and the notoriety that that, that brought now his his legacy grant i mean it's set people saying that this ruins his legacy. Wait a minute. For 30 years outside of Tiger Woods, who's done more for golf than Phil? I don't think anybody. Nobody. I don't think anybody. No. But does this somehow taint or tarnish his legacy? It, it possibly could. Well. It possibly could, and that's unfortunate. But if you're Bryson DeChambeau or you're Ricky Fowler or you're Dustin Johnson, And you've got a a competitive tour coming to you and saying to you, we will pay you five times what you're currently making, and you don't even have to win. You can just show up. Would you take that money? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I understand. I certainly would pause. Yeah. I would pause. And and these are guys that are still trying to secure the kind of lifestyle that Phil Mickelson already has. So I think you have to look at it from both sides of the spectrum. And the other thing that jumped out at me watching Mickelson, uh, Grant, and I will throw a little bit of a political curveball your way. Sure. Think about the double standard here of the way the media from a sports standpoint is grilling Phil Mickelson versus the way the news media deals with the president of the United States when he's flying to Saudis. He's flying to Saudi Arabia and to Iran to talk about help with our energy woes.
0: Yep. I'm with you. Think
1: about that. Yep. Hey, great point. Does the news media grill him the same way the sports media grills Phil Mickelson? I think that's an easy question to answer. Tim, five
0: months ago, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't the entire world go to Beijing to participate in the winter Olympics?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and by the way, uh, and, I, and I'll say this because I, I as I said I, I like him and I respect him Bob costas had he been there probably would have said some things that NBC now wouldn't have liked correct yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah so you know I, I always ask you this question because I, I just love your knowledge and I love picking your brain I want you to look into yeah. your crystal ball for me and I want you to give me your best guess where do you think this ends up five five if if we're talking right now in 2027. Where do you think golf's going to be five years from now?
1: Well, I, I, this notion, this is the thing that does bother me about Live Golf. When I hear Phil say uh, we're growing the game, I, I don't see where Live Golf is really growing the game right now. It's growing his pockets. Yeah, it's growing. It, it, it's it's growing the wallets of those participating. But I don't know that the format structure or playing fifty-four holes is necessarily something that golf fans are going, gosh, we just love this new team format. I'm not buying any of that. I mean, I'm not. But competition is always good, generally speaking. Okay, I've always felt, for instance, spring football uh, can work. Uh, And uh, and I like the fact that there's a USFL now and that there might be an XFL to compete with it next spring. Uh, Generally speaking, competition can be good. Here's where I think this will take us, and, and I think it will probably be to the ultimate good of the PGA Tour. Jay, Jay Monahan is going to have to take a look in the mirror and and say, okay, the demands that the PGA for years have had on players, and this is great players, okay, this is these are accomplished players. They are told you have to play in a minimum number of events, 15 through the calendar year to maintain your status. Mm-hmm. And the players are saying, w- why? We've, we've gone out and we've earned what we've earned. And through that, we have become eligible to play in as many tournaments as we want. But, you know, Phil's got a lifetime, you know, he, he's got a lifetime membership. And, and now he's being told he can't play. Well, I don't know that that's really the right way to go if you're the PGA. And it's all because of the monopoly that they've had. If by chance they decide that they want to go to court, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV, but Grant, I've got friends that are. And a little bit like, a little bit like the NCAA, I don't think the PGA wants to ever go to court and be in a position of saying, well, you know, antitrust laws here, antitrust laws there. Yes, we can limit whether these guys are eligible to play. And they are in fact, independent contractors. Okay, they are. These are not teams owned by moguls. It's a whole different deal. And, and I think they're going to have to make some adjustments. And that's really going all the way back to when Greg Norman was the first one to pontificate about this, and then Phil Mickelson kind of followed him with that. That's been the beef all along with a lot of the players, especially the yep. accomplished ones, that, that they, they don't like being told you have to do this, you must do that when they believe that they've already gone out and done so much. You know, most people don't realize this, Grant, but golfers, professional golfers, historically, have given more to their communities than any other professional in sports of any kind. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just go and look at the philanthropic work that they've done historically. It's amazing. Yeah. They, they do more than just about anybody in any sport. And, and I think the PGA Tour needs to take a look at that and, and then at themselves and say, okay, here's the deal. Um, you know, the world golf rankings may not, and that, this may hurt Live Golf, the, the world golf rankings are going to be important if these guys want to be able to play in major events like the, the Open and, and the U.S. Open. That, that matters in terms of becoming eligible to play. Mm. But can't. at the same time, the PGA has to understand that this money from the Saudis is a bottomless pit. You know they it can't is. compete. Yep. You, we saw Rory McIlroy win 1.8 million for winning a 72-hole event in Canada last week. Charles Schwarzl pocketed four million for winning a 54-hole event <laughs> with about a third of the right. uh, of the competition that was in Canada. Yeah, think about that. Yeah.
0: I'll tell you, it's unbelievable. Um, hey, before I let you go, I want to get a Father's Day memory for you. I've shared, I think, the two greatest moments <laughs> that I ever had with my dad, and I'm speaking now from a yeah. professional perspective, was the call that I gave him in 1988 to tell him that I was going to be the TV announcer of the Sacramento Kings, and he broke down on the phone, and then a couple of months later, oh, I no. did my first ever game at Madison Square Garden, where we basically grew up in New York and were at all the events, and I had my dad on the floor at MSG and meeting Walt Frazier and all that. Those were just two memories that I will take to my grave. When I say Father's Day to you, and you're, you're a dad, and not only are you a dad, you're a grandfather, you have several grandchildren. Do you have one moment mm-hmm. uh, 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 above the rest, whether it's with your dad or yeah. you as a father, that you that really sticks out above yeah. the rest? <laughs>
1: You know, uh, as you, uh, Grant, you know me well enough to know my father was a broadcaster. He yes. was a pioneer of sport, uh, television in my own town. Uh, In the beginning, I just wanted to be like him. Uh, I never thought that I would be anything other than a broadcaster. And by the time I was, uh, gosh, five or six, I knew I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And he was doing three live television shows in the 60s. Anyway, he, he, he knew that my generation would be one of specificity. And uh, he was sort of a jack of all trades, like most radio guys were when they went into TV and it was brand new after coming over from World War II. And um, uh, at the age of 14, <clears throat> in 1971, September 10th, 1971, at the age of 14, as a ninth grader, uh, I called my first high school football game with my father. Mm. Uh, who at the time owned a, a hotel in Monroe, Louisiana, and he basically got out of the TV business, had had uh, been in L.A. for a while, uh, and had come back. Uh, he would later go back to L.A. He was a screenplay writer, too, but he owned a, a, a piece of a hotel in Monroe, which is 100 miles away from my hometown, and some of the locals knew my dad's iconic background in Shreveport, and They needed a broadcaster for Neville High School Football, which is a proud program in Louisiana. Uh, It was one of just a gazillion state championships. They came to him, one of his buddies, and said, Hub, we need a guy. We lost our broadcaster this past year. We need a guy to call the games. We knew you you, you of your background. Would you help us out? And he said, I'd be happy to do it as long as you allow me to pick my my second banana, my color (laughs) analyst. Not knowing, of course, it would be his 14-year-old son. Right.
0: That's beautiful.
1: (laughs) Dad knew right away this was his opportunity to help me. It was like a gift from heaven in his mind. I love it. So we struck a deal that he would do the play-by-play in the first half, I would do the color, and then the second half, when the game got more interesting, we'd flip spots. And I would call the second halves of these games as a 14-year-old. Well, I was ready to go. He had heard me, you know, broadcasting games in my back bedroom and how good I was and how on top of it I was as a kid with my cassette recorder. We're driving to the stadium. The game happened to be in Shreveport. So it was a hometown game, Captain Shreve High School, where my daughters later would go to school playing Neville High. And we're driving to the stadium and I got a little uncomfortable and, and, and quiet. And it wasn't nerves because he had taught me not to be nervous. I mean, yeah, maybe I had some sweaty palms, but I was ready to go. Mm -hmm. But I did feel uncomfortable and awkward about something. And he picked up on that and he said, "Uh, Tim, what's wrong? And I paused for a second and I said, you know, Dad, uh, I've been thinking about this and I've just got one issue. I got one problem. He says, "Uh, all right, well, what is it, son? I said, well, I mean, I think everybody's going to know that I'm 14. He said. yeah. I said, and I think everybody's going to know that your names, uh, your last name is my last name. He says, yeah. I said, well, I just feel really uncomfortable about calling you dad on the air. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I said, at some point, at some point, Oh, uh, in just conversation and dialogue, I'm going to have to call you. He <laughs> said, son, you can call me by my first name. You can call me Hub. His, dad, his name was Old Hub Brando. Oh, man. Short for Loyola Hubert. That's amazing. And I said, uh, oh, wow, Dad, thanks. I, I just was <laughs> like, I, I was sweating bullets over that. <laughs> <laughs> I love and, that. Uh, and, and at some point, though, at some point there was an exciting play in the uh, – second quarter, and I was doing, color. thank God it didn't happen while I was calling play-by-play. Play. Oh, it was an exciting play, and I just kind of had one of those adolescent moments, and I said, Dad, did you see that? <laughs> 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 and he, he, he punched me in the solar plexus, oh. and I fell off the stool I was <laughs> on in the booth. And that was sort of my, my one embarrassing moment. I got it out of the way. The first half of My that. first game.
0: Oh, man.
1: September 10th of 1971. So that was 51 oh. years ago. And last summer at this time, I was being inducted into the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame. Phenomenal. As um, an ambassador. It was, a, it was a brand new award. A one-time only uh, award. And, and Until I guess there's a Tim Brando 2.0 that comes along. But. I was really honored and flattered to be inducted awesome. into the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame as uh, an ambassador for <laughs> our state. And he and, and I was reminded that you know, without that day, without that moment, without my father, uh, I would not have uh, risen to the heights that uh, <laughs> that I have. So that's that's my moment.
0: Well, on that note, I hope you have a phenomenal Father's Day on Sunday. It is so great to be able to reminisce with you and chat with you and, uh, tap into your knowledge. I greatly appreciate it. And I've been getting phenomenal feedback when I have you on. So thank you very much and have yourself a fabulous weekend.
1: You too, Grant. All the best to you and your family.
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Always great talking to Tim Brando. Really appreciate his time. He's been a guest on my podcast uh, on several occasions. He talked about his memory of Father's Day. Uh, I think, listen, I have memories. You have memories. Uh, I would not be in the position that I am today without my dad taking me to games at such an early age. Both my brother and I season tickets to the Jets and the Giants growing up, going to college games. Uh, My dad never missed one of my games when I played sports. And my dad had his own business in New York City. He was an insurance broker. And it took about an hour to get from the city to where we lived on Long Island. He would take the train. And I can't tell you how many times right before the game would start, whether it was a lacrosse game, or a football game, but particularly lacrosse because on football uh, in high school, we played on Saturdays, not on Friday nights. So my dad didn't work on the weekends. But every lacrosse game that I ever played, whether it was in junior high school or high school, there would be my dad walking across the field in a suit to go watch me play and never missed a game, was at every home game, was at every road game, and... It was just uh, phenomenal uh, to have that support. I'll never think about that. You know, people ask me a lot about my dad. Uh, I always felt that my dad was uh, above and beyond for the era that he lived in. Uh, My dad was about equality. My dad was about doing, not talking. Uh, My dad always, and I mean always, put himself last. He didn't drive nice cars. He didn't wear fancy clothes. He spent his money on things that were important to him, and none of those things included himself. The only thing that my dad gifted to himself was being part of an outdoor tennis club on Huntington, Long Island called the Huntington Racquet Club. They had six clay courts, and my dad was there all the time. He lived there on the weekends, it was his sanctuary. It was his solace. It was a place where he was the happiest. And of course, living on Long Island in New York, that meant that there was no tennis outdoors on the clay courts in the wintertime. But that was my dad's sanctuary, and he absolutely loved it. And I used to love visiting that club, and I used to go up there for lunch when I was home on break or what have you. And the people that I met at that tennis club were just absolutely phenomenal. But my dad was all about helping others. Uh, I'll never forget the story of my dad on the March on Washington on behalf of the Community Church of New York and the Dr. Reverend Harrington, who I was, my middle name is named after at the Unitarian Universalist Church in New York City. Uh, my dad got many, many buses of people to go to the March... On Washington, And again, my dad was not a talker. He was a doer. And my dad did what he believed in. My dad was anti-war, even though he served in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Uh, my dad was the only one in his unit that returned home. He was the only one that didn't get off the ship in Okinawa. They made him a signal man. And uh, everyone in his unit perished on Okinawa. My dad didn't talk about the war. I didn't ask him about the war. Uh, My dad was anti-war. He was anti-gun. And my dad protested many times against the war. I mean, really, my dad would be out there with the other protesters. Uh, My dad was somebody that just lived by the actions. It's not what I say. It is what I do. And my dad was not a follower my dad was a leader, and my dad really, and I, I mean this in all sincerity, my dad was one of those individuals that was beloved by everyone. My dad didn't have any enemies. My dad just did not have any enemies because of the way he treated people, and I'm i am unbelievably grateful, internally grateful, and beyond lucky that I had a father like that, and I learned a lot. Uh, he passed on the real, I think, core elements of being a good person and judging a person on whether they're a good person or a bad person, not based on their religion, not based on their ethnicity, and that's how I grew up. And it was preached to my brother and I at a very early age. And to this day, as I get ready to turn 63 tomorrow, I look back on the unbelievable, invaluable lessons that my dad taught us in terms of dealing with people, people that did not look like us, did not talk like us, people that were less fortunate, and I can go on and on. Those are the core beliefs and the values that are instilled in me today. And as a dad, I think we all have our stories of children. And like my dad did for me, I always tried to provide the same thing for my boys because sports is obviously a huge part of my life. And it was a huge part of my Kid's life, And I think maybe the best time I've ever had with my two boys was at the Super Bowl in Indianapolis when the Giants beat the Patriots for the second time. And I gave them a choice. I said, do you want to go on vacation this summer or do you want to go to the Super Bowl? And they said Super Bowl because I had a friend that worked for the Raiders. He got me uh, three tickets, face value of $950. I had a game the night before at home against the Warriors, the game went to overtime. I had a twelve twenty flight. We barely made the flight from San Francisco to Dallas. We went to the Super Bowl in Indianapolis. We had the best time. It was a memory that my boys will have until they take their last breath. Obviously, the Giants won. It was a phenomenal game. Eli Manning to Mario Manningham. The key play in that game, the Hail Mary at the end of the game, which the Patriots almost executed we hung out in Indianapolis for a while after the game, just taking it all in. Then drove three hours to Chicago, found a hotel uh, near Midway. It was probably 2.30 in the morning. Had to get up at 5.30. I put my boys on a plane at Midway to go back home because I had a game that night in New Orleans against the Pelicans. So I said goodbye to my boys. Then I boarded a Southwest flight through Nashville uh, to get to New Orleans. And I think, you know, we've all shared – great members. I've always said, and, and again, I'm speaking for me, but I've had similar stories heard from others that the moments that we have shared at sporting events with our loved ones always remain near the top of our memory bank. There's just something about being at a game, particularly a really good game, Maybe you have a memory of a famous athlete or you ran into somebody you knew or you caught a foul ball or whatever the case may be. But, boy, sports just brought my family together on so many occasions. It was such a huge part and still is today of my life. But the things that my dad instilled in me that really had nothing to do with sports had to deal with how you treat people, about respect, about respect, Uh, about helping the less fortunate. And I've always tried to pass that on to my sons. But in the process, we shared so many phenomenal memories at sporting events. I would love to know some of your fondest memories. You can leave me a comment, particularly if you were listening, listening via Apple Podcast. I would love it if you would rate the podcast and then leave me a comment. You can share a story that maybe you have as a dad or with your dad. All right, with that said, why don't we get to our CrowdUltra Q&A? Just go to and Maybe I'll answer your question on my next podcast. Ben asks, who's an athlete you'd love to meet that you haven't? It's actually not an athlete. It's a coach. I've always wanted to meet Bill Parcells. I've always wanted to interview Bill Parcells. And that's the one that I wish I could meet and interview. Aaron wants to know how much longer until we find out if Deshaun Watson will get to play. I got to tell you, Aaron, he's not going to get to play. I think that's going to be shocking if he gets to play. And I don't understand why uh, the NFL takes such a long time. Sam wants to know, do you think there will ever be a better shooter than Steph Curry? Better? No. I don't think it will be better. Rich asked an interesting question. Are umps getting hit more often because catchers are on one knee? Great question. I think the answer to that is yes. You know, I have a lot of friends that are umpires. One of my best friends is an umpire. And, the boy, the battering and the punishment that they take behind the plate is unbelievable. Great question. Adam asks, are the Broncos going to be contenders this year? I don't think so. I don't think they are. I don't think they're a playoff team. Duncan asks, why do you think Sean Payton turned down a $100 million deal with the Dolphins? Duncan, I don't know. I don't even know if it was $100 million. But uh, I can't speak for Sean Payton, and I, I don't know. Charlie wants to know, how much baseball have you been watching? Charlie, how about zero? I did go to a Marlins-Giants game a few weeks ago to see my friend umpire, but I haven't been watching baseball at all. I've really been watching hockey almost every time I watch sports. Uh, Hockey's been my go-to. I've not watched baseball uh, at all. David asks, do you think that James Harden will return to the Sixers? Uh, Yeah, he's got a player option. Why would he turn down the 40-plus million? I mean, yes, I absolutely do. Jacob wants to know, do you pay any attention to to the college baseball playoffs. I do. I think it's great. I think it's phenomenal. I actually enjoy watching it. So, yes, I do. Ian wants to know, what's your take on the NHL not allowing the Cup to travel to Russia this year? Well, you know, Russia's involved in a war, and I I don't know if the Cup goes within the borders of Russia, you know, if it's coming out and everything else. So, I don't have a problem with that. I absolutely don't. Not at all. Trevor asks, have you heard any rumors or inside info about an NBA team in Vegas? You know, Adam Silver recently said expansion is not on the table. Seattle's going to get a team first. I think we know that. I think Vegas will eventually get a team, but it's going to be Seattle first, and I don't know what the timetable would be. All right, let's get to Alex. Why isn't there more full-court pressure in the NBA? Because the players are too good, and they break the pressure too easily, which really sets up fast-break opportunities. I think you'll see it in in a surprise element. But in terms of real true full court pressure, the only time they really use it is to take some time off the shot clock. So when they get into the half court set, they don't have as much time on the shot clock. Case against, doesn't Jason Garrett seem like a weird choice to replace Drew Brees as an analyst on NBC? No, I actually think he's going to be much better than Drew Brees. I think Jason Garrett can be very good in that element so I don't think it's a weird choice at all I mean the guy has been in a coach for many many years assistant coach head coach he's very well respected uh Drew Brees was not very good so I think he'll be pretty good based on what I've seen I think he's going to be pretty good Colin wants to know is Montrezl Harrell's recent arrest going to affect him playing I don't know where things stand he was arrested with what three pounds of pot in his car I I, I don't know very good question very good question Jerry wants to know if I saw the guy who looks like Clay Thompson shooting on the court for over 10 minutes before game five. I did. I saw the video uh, that he posted. You know, there's a lot of weird freaking people in the world today. It really is. Um, And it's sad. And, you know, it makes you really understand that you're never safe anywhere. I mean, if that guy had been a, you know, if he had a suicide vest on. Now, I know he went through a detector and everything. But the point is, man, you just don't know. You just don't know in this day and age. Very bizarre, and he's been banned uh, from ever going to a game at the Warriors again, and he should be. Uh, it's just ridiculous. All right, go to crowdultra.com, and maybe I'll answer your question on my next podcast.
1: It's time for Brent All
0: right, the NBA Finals are in the books. The Golden State Warriors last night beating the Boston Celtics in six, and I, for one, say thank goodness. The NBA playoffs this year, for the most part, was terrible. You had six games in the finals, no game closer than 10 points. There was no drama. There was no last-minute possession. There was no tied games with a minute left. Really, there was no excitement at the end of games this year in the NBA finals. The Miami series against Boston was terrible. There were so many bad series in the NBA. And the question really is, what is the NBA going to do about it? I think your game needs repair. I think your game has become too much Of three-point shooting. I think it's bad for the game. I think it's why you see so many lopsided scores. It's why you see so many runs in the game. I mean, look at game one with what Boston did in the fourth quarter. You look at what the Warriors did when they had their big quarters, and you can point to one thing, and it was three-point shooting. The league has gone overboard with their offense. They need to do something, and this year's playoffs are a prime example of what's wrong with the NBA. Again, six games in the NBA Finals. Not one game was decided by 10 points or less. That's not good. That's not good, in my opinion, for the NBA. And that's my rant for today. To the dads out there, hope you have a fabulous Father's Day. Enjoy the weekend. And thank you so much for listening to If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier. So long, everybody.